Welcome to Women Leading Change, the podcast that amplifies the voices and missions of women changemakers from around the world. My name is Laureen Nolan Card, women's leadership expert, and I'm going to share the strategies that women changemakers use to successfully lead in bold new ways that are in alignment with their values and true to themselves. Listen weekly as I share personal insights and inspiring interviews with women who are being the change they seek to see. So you too can evolve your own leadership skills, grow your own paradigm shifting business and mission and be the change we're all seeking. Joining me today is Dr. Stacy Shelby. Stacy Shelby is an author, speaker, educator, and depth psychotherapist. She's also a registered clinical counselor in Canada, a certified clinical dream tender, and has studied in depth in folk medicines and yoga traditions. She is adjunct faculty at Pacifica Graduate Institute, where she teaches Psyche and Eros, the psychology and mythology of romantic love. Stacy has a thriving clinical practice in Squamish, BC, working with men and women in various stages of personal transformation in person and via the internet. She is gifted in working with the symbolic language of the soul and is dedicated to honoring the soul as it presents in the lived experience of daily life. Her 2018 publication, Tracking the Wild Woman Archetype, A Guide to Becoming a Whole Indivisible Woman, is on the individuation process as it pertains to midlife and is relevant for both men and women. She studied at Pacifica Graduate Institute and completed her doctoral research with a specialization in Jungian and archetypal studies. Please join me in welcoming Stacy Shelby to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me, Lorene. It's uh, exciting to be here and share this with you. Thank you. So I want to get started by talking about your newly published book, Tracking the Wild Woman Archetype is the name of the book, and it's a book that is based on your doctoral research. Is that right? That's right. So when I was doing my um, doctoral research, this was my topic, and then I evolved it after a couple of years into a book that was published. Hmm. What is the Wild Woman Archetype? What is the wild woman archetype? So there's a whole chapter dedicated to this, one of the longer chapters. Mm -hmm. The the nutshell version is um, it's who a woman is before socialization, before domestication, before enculturation. It's who we're born into the world. It's intact with our instincts, our intuition, our, our more wild, authentic sense. So it would be maybe um, similar to the question Simone de Beauvoir was asking over a hundred years ago of who is a woman before she is made? Mm. And that was what I really wanted to explore is who, who is a woman? What is the, what is the seed of a woman? Mm. What brought you to that question? Well, I think going through my own personal individuation journey, um, also affectionately known as the midlife crisis, mm-hmm. it, uh, it found me, that, that question of, um, okay, who am I now having to reinvent my life 
mm-hmm. from where I was at after everything collapsed, which then did lead me to studying depth psychology. Depth is D-E-P-T-H, depth, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a Jungian-based um, psychology. It's a psychology that's in service to psyche, to soul. And through, through that process at the school, rediscovering who I was at my core, that was, that was why I was led to that question. It was what I was recovering at that time. Hmm. Now you say recovering as opposed to discovering, and I, I know that's important. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I can. You know, I almost, instead of using the term wild woman, I, I've bounced around with a few different terms. One of them was feral woman, mm. um, which I, I still really resonate with, um, but it's so associated with cats, but actually that, <laughs> <laughs> that even works too. Um, but it's that sense of we're born wild, we're domesticated, and then we come back to our wild self. Mm. And so it's that returning to that wild self that was always there it just was uh, you know polished and preened in a way that it wasn't really expressing itself mm-hmm. and, and why is it not expressing is that patriarchy and the culture that cause us to not express I suppose there could be a lot of different reasons uh, right from the beginning um, is a patriarchal culture and so that socialization teaches us you know our our values that we've all agreed upon as a society and as a culture, the ideals, the framework that we're supposed to behave within. So because we are born into a patriarchal culture that's well over 2,000 years old, it's very, very hard to individually become conscious of the ways the patriarchy influences us and affects us. So it takes quite a concerted effort of self-reflection to start to recognize all the ways that we have been influenced by the patriarchy. And I say all the ways, but honestly, I don't know that we can ever actually be fully conscious of all the ways we're influenced internally and externally. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of events that bring us to that question? I mean, obviously, if everything's going along tickety-boo and we're happy with the way we're living within patriarchy, we probably don't arrive at this question. Am I right? Absolutely. The lovely stage of ignorance is bliss is (laughs) true for a reason. If there's nothing that causes us to have to grow, then we just carry on in that naive state indefinitely. But fortunately or unfortunately, life isn't static. And so something will eventually come that causes uh, a deep shakeup and some sort of experience to cause us to have to go through this reflective process. So commonly, that occurs in what we call, in Jungian terms, we call it midlife. And that is roughly around 35, give or take. It's a very flexible number. And so we start to then challenge the the system that we've been in, usually because there's something that's occurred. So maybe a divorce, maybe an illness, maybe a depression or anxiety, even childbirth, something as positive as having a child because it decentralizes your worldview. All these different things can occur. 
often it's some sort of sense of a crisis, though. Mm-hmm. And so we embark on this questioning of the, the culture around us and who we are within it. And then we come to this question, and how do we go about finding who we are without all of the conditioning or some without as much of the conditioning as we can release? Well, usually at that point, we don't know, right? Usually by the time we are in a state of crisis and everything is kind of falling apart around us and we're in some sort of process of transformation and we probably don't even realize we're in a process of transformation initially we we don't know the way forward and that is part of the journey trying to find our way forward so people will often seek out something that intuitively feels helpful to them often that's when we start counseling or therapy it usually starts with I just need some coping tools, which Mm -hmm. um, we've all probably said and heard. And that lasts for a little while, but you have to really do the deeper work beyond the, you know, the deep breathing and the yoga and the meditation. You have to really start questioning what are your values? What are your priorities? What's important to you? And reflecting on who am I? Like Mm -hmm. that, that really big existential question of who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? Right. Right. And so, you know, when, when everything's crumbling around us or the ground from beneath us feels like it, it's giving way and we're following into the falling into the abyss of kind of darkness and uncertainty, we have to decide what are we all about? What do I value? What am I going to rebuild in this place of of nothingness. Um, and from that question comes the dis- the recovering of who we actually are, right? Yes. And and like so what does that look like when we begin to integrate the wild woman archetype? Well, it will look different for everyone. Um, and I guess part of to go back to the, the original question of what's the wild woman archetype, I, I also do want to bring in uh, Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes. Mm. She initially wrote about it, I think it was 25 years ago now, in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, mm-hmm. which was um, groundbreaking at that time. It was one of the most widely published and successful Jungian books and their whole anthology was uh, fairy tales and folklore designed to bring women back in contact with that wild nature within themselves mm-hmm. so part of how she defined the wild woman was um, the soul the woman's soul mm-hmm. which was a really broad beautiful definition so she in particular uses story Um, and folklore and fable to help women come into contact with that wild woman archetype. Um, So anything that speaks symbolically, right? The the psyche, psyche is the Greek word for soul. The psyche speaks to us in symbolic language. And so anything that's communicating to us symbolically will, will be our compass point. It's not gonna be a direct, clear, linear path. But we're communicating with a new part of ourselves that 
probably has been largely repressed until this point. So story, dreams, which has personally been my main compass, Mm -hmm. active imagination, synchronicities, being in nature, which is now a field called eco-psychology, so reading nature for symbols and signs, poetry, art, all of these highly symbolic mediums of communication are coming to us from psyche, which is directly related to the wild woman archetype. So following that guidance, trying to decode it, pay attention to it, and trying to decode it, that is each woman's individual map. Mm. What about that is the the access point to, I mean, how do I know if something is true to follow? I mean, there's so much, there's so much out there that Um, You know, people say externally to us, you should do this and you should do that. And all the um, conditioning, how, if I'm a person who's in this kind of midlife crisis, how do I know what's true for me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it takes time, you know, the, the conscious personality, which I would define as the ego, which is different than how Buddhists would define it. So the, the personality that holds everything that we're conscious of, it really likes clarity and it likes it quickly. So it wants to know what is the right way through this? What is the, you know, how do I navigate through this as quickly as possible? Because it's really uncomfortable to sit in this uncertain, unfamiliar, disorienting, topsy-turvy world. Right. And so even recognizing that there's an impetus to want to try to move through it quickly is really important so that you don't make any really quick, rash decisions. It's a process that does take uh, time to differentiate and discern the pluralistic psyche. So what I mean by that pluralistic psyche is the psyche contains multiple different perspectives and vantage points and we can call those voices as a Jungian I would call them archetypes each of them has a different perspective they want to bring forward and the conscious personality the ego has to start to differentiate which is which is which and start to make conscious choices about okay I can see that this Aphrodite archetype might be really keen on the Jimmy Choo's but the <laughs> accountant archetype is maybe a lot less keen on that. You know, so you start to differentiate internal structure of what the different perspectives are that are being mm. offered to you. Mm. Great. Thanks. That's very helpful. And the wild woman, how do we know when she's present? So the wild woman, where I would differentiate her voice from psyche or soul, is uh, the very big difference is embodiment, the body, and mm. in particular, the instincts. So through socialization, we've been taught, not consciously, but that's how it's, it's just happened that way. We've been taught to not trust our instincts, to not hear them, to disconnect from the body. So we, we really have to learn to connect to that instinctual place 
So the body's holding all that wisdom of the gut reaction, the the feeling place, the the knowing without knowing. So it's it's really about um, staying connected to the to the body, the physical, the physicality of the being. Mm-hmm. Right, and so many of us are are taught to disconnect from the body, disconnect from sexuality, or to exploit it for power or hide it for shame. Uh-huh. Yeah, sexuality in particular is such a point of conflict for so many women, maybe every woman as she's going through this um, really awakening period and process. Mm-hmm. Um, because we're taught about our sexuality through the lens of patriarchy. We're usually introduced to our sexuality and our bodies through the experience with another male. Mm -hmm. So really having, and then of course, I mean, that's not even touching the iceberg about the objectification of women for so many thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So really having to find what our personal relationship is to our sexual body and the, the very different functions it has when we're younger in our 20s, 30s, maybe it's much more about procreation. As we're in different stages, maybe it's much more about pleasure and enjoying the pleasure that the physical body can offer. And also recognizing it's a sacred temple and it has to be treated with reverence and respect. And that's from ourselves as well as others that we're engaging with. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how all of this fits together with um, relationships in midlife. It occurs to me that, you know, the, the wild woman, there's this whole context around, you know, girls gone wild and uh, the vision that that is. And I know that's not what you're talking about. And yet there's this, this piece of the untamed, the instinctual part of the wild woman, but she's also whole and indivisible. And I'm wondering if you can tell us how that typically plays out through the relationships that we're in at that time in our lives. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to break that into two parts. One is the... The first part, the wild woman um, being different than that girl's gone wild piece, mm-hmm. that, that, is, that is a stage. It's usually more like when we're 20 at university or something. Mm-hmm. The, the fundamental difference is the level of consciousness. So that is more the ignorance is bliss state, <laughs> right? right? It's, it is a, a very free, wild stage but consciousness like in terms of self and the divine within us is not present yet so then we have to go through this stage of recovering becoming conscious of that and then recovering the instinctual body piece which is much more about recovering the wild woman part and then we have to retain consciousness. So we have to change the, retain the mind. So we have to keep all those pieces held together. We can't regress into an unconscious state. The mind is very much a part of the consciousness. It has to be there. Mm-hmm. So these are all, um, these are all alchemical operations within the transformation process. And they actually do occur in a chronological order. 
in, in that order of the, you know, what we'll call the participation mystique or the ignorance is bliss, mm-hmm. where we're not aware that we're in that state. And then we start to bring in the, the mental union. We start to bring in consciousness. And then we bring in consciousness in the body. And then we retain it all and we pull it all together. And that's, that's what happens at midlife. It's this awakening where we can hold all those pieces together. Mm. Where does the soul come in then? In the process? Yes. Well, personally, I think the soul is the one driving it all from the beginning. Mm. Um, it, I think what, what has to happen, though, is the first stage of life is about ego development, development of the conscious personality. And again, I use ego and conscious personality interchangeably. Mm-hmm. So in the Jungian sense, we require a strong vessel or a strong container for the conscious personality. So then at midlife, when the soul or the wild woman, or Jung might call it the self with a capital S, I think these things all require a bit more differentiation than I'm offering in this particular moment. Mm -hmm. What happens is the ego then becomes in service to this more divine nature. The soul, though, represents a feminine, um, and I really don't love using engendered terms, but symbolic feminine principle. So not women, but the soul, the anima, is always personified as a feminine being. Hmm. It's represented symbolically as a feminine image. Yeah. So that seems to happen at around midlife, and ultimately the ego then becomes in service to that divine self, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily that it's in service to the feminine. Again, with the alchemical transformation process, there's a union that happens between the masculine, which is already contained in the conscious personality because it represents consciousness, mm-hmm. and now the feminine, which represents the unconscious. So there's a, a, what we call a sacred marriage or a sacred union that occurs between those two symbolic principles, and that occurs intrapsychically. That's the, ultimately the completion of the individuation process in the midlife stage. It's not like we stop living, but we at least become conscious and aware that there's something much bigger that's that's always going on within us. Mm. Individuation meaning what? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Individuation um, is a Jungian Carl Jung concept of essentially that, the ego becoming aware and awake to the fact that there's this divine nature within that occurs at about midlife, and then the ego becomes in service to that more divine nature. The definition that I most prefer is if we think of all of these opposites within us, masculine, feminine, conscious, unconscious, light, dark, lunacy, all these different opposites within us, they have to get reconciled, and then they that there's an impetus towards wholeness, the more of these opposites that get reconciled, and then we become indivisible. 
So individuation is not becoming an individual. It's about becoming indivisible, a person who's whole in themselves and can no longer be divided by these conflicting views and perspectives that offer through the psyche. Mm, Right. So I know that your initial question, I think, for the research was how how would a woman do relationships differently when she's integrated the, the wild woman? Right, right. So to bring this back to relationships, which um, is the piece that I kind of dropped a little bit back there. <laughs> uh, so relationships, so I'll just read how I initially wrote that, my, my research question that was guiding this process. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways a woman who has recovered the wild woman archetype expresses her sexuality and engages in relationships? So the assumption I had at the beginning, which was incredibly hubristic and naive, actually, (laughs) was that I knew a woman who had recovered the wild woman archetype, and I wanted to know how she was engaging in sexuality and relationships. Mm. Well... I realized by the end of the research that I I really had that all in backwards order. And what I learned was that it should have been rephrased as, what are some of the ways sexuality and relationships inspire a woman to recover the wild woman archetype? So what I realized is relationships and sexuality have enough tension and heat and grist for the mill that they are actually catalysts that can cause the awakening to occur, the awakening of the wild woman archetype. And she ultimately is orchestrating this whole thing from the beginning because she wants to come into relationship with us once we're old enough, mature enough, our ego container is fortified enough that it can handle that relationship with the wild woman archetype. Right. And so we'll, we'll often find ourselves at midlife. It's terribly common for both men and women that suddenly we're in some sort of relationship co- uh, conflict. So we might find ourselves enamored with a person who is not able to reciprocate and that creates a huge amount of conflict or we might be, or, or maybe the person is wanting to reciprocate, but maybe one or the other or both are not available for commitment for whatever reasons. So there's obviously some sort of conflict that comes with the relationship at midlife. So when we have these relationship challenges, what gets activated in us is what we can call the libido, which is a kind of generalized creative energy. And it has a huge amount of energy. It's probably the most potent energy that that we have. Jung felt like it was the most important and strongest drive that we had. And it was the only instinct that could stand in opposition to the power of the spiritual drive because it's so strong. So because relationships have this potential to um, really activate all of our complexes and insecurities and challenges and bring everything we thought we knew about ourselves into question, essentially, they have the potency to cause us to start waking up and come into self-awareness with the wild woman archetype. Mm. Yes, they do. (laughs) (laughs) 
Don't they? Uh, you are so open as you share from your own life experiences in your book. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the biggest or hardest challenge you faced on your journey to where you are now. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It, it all feels challenging. Mm-hmm. Well, it did. I should, I should actually not be so disheartening <laughs> <laughs> because there's this body of work with this individuation process that seems to take years and the number of years varies mm-hmm. but those are really intense years of hard struggle and then after that when we get to the other side of that and we're living so much more authentically and aligned with our wild woman aligned with our instinctual and intuitive nature engaged with a feminine principle it really like the challenges are so much more navigable they they flow so much better we have a lot more resiliency and so it really does get easier um, because we're aware of what's going on and, and know how to find our way through as, mm-hmm. as we're kind of more on the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, like when, when personally I was in that, for me it was a 10-year a period, um, all of it was challenging, mm-hmm. like a- absolutely everything, trying to figure out... And I, because partly I didn't even know what I was trying to figure out, but just... Well, and that's so typical, right? It's it, just flailing about. Just flailing about, not even knowing anything other than I was flailing and mm-hmm. needed help, but not even sure what help I needed with what, right? Mm-hmm. For, for many of us, it is a complete um, like dismemberment of every part of our lives mm-hmm. that then has to get rebuilt again. Mm-hmm. I'd had a dream at one time during this process and I was, I was a rose bush and I was pruning the rose bush mm. and the rose bush just, so I was both, you know, dreams can yeah. be like that. Yeah. And the rose bush just got completely dismembered and taken apart. And then the next day it was growing back and it was flourishing again and it was it was like this symbol of hope of oh yes this just has to happen Mm -hmm. so that this other thing can grow back in a better way Mm -hmm. and I know you're trained as a dream tender Um, is that one of the ways you navigate through decision making hard times and discomfort for me uh, personally, absolutely it is. Um, and that, that has uh, actually always been my practice, mm-hmm. which is interesting. I just started when I was more engaged in this process, I started using it, uh, dreams, much more intentionally. Um, and there, the guidance from dreams you know, often comes over months, not necessarily in one dream. And it can be confusing to navigate because it's so symbolic. But I have found, and it's not always, I mean, it's in fact often not logical and in, in opposition to logic. But for me, that has been um, the best way for me to find my way forward. So in conjunction with my dreams, I also have a dream journal and I write them down and I reflect on them usually twice a day, once in the morning to write it down. And Mm -hmm. then again at night to reflect on it. 
So that's been a really helpful part for me. Mm-hmm. In terms of my clinical practice, um, I'd say probably a quarter of my clients work actively with their dreams. It's not necessarily everybody's way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't need to be. I think it sort of depends on what we're called to do in this, in this life and at this time as well. Mm-hmm. In addition to the dream journaling and reflection, is there anything else that you do regularly to sustain yourself in your work? Yeah, th- that's big. Mm-hmm. Um, alone time for me as a dominantly introverted person. So mm-hmm. in terms of Jungian typology, which is more commonly known now as Myers-Briggs typology, I'm dominantly introverted intuitive. So introverts, anyone who's dominantly introverted will require alone time. Mm-hmm. And so making sure I get enough alone time is a priority. And then I happen to live in Squamish, British Columbia, which is a small little town with a lot of big mountains and nature around me. I'm able and blessed and grateful that several times a day I can get out into a pretty wild environment just behind my house and walk my dog and just having the connection with nature and whatever little creatures happen to be there there's always something (laughs) just it just really helps with the I don't know cleansing grounding probably Mm -hmm. the grounding all of it it's wonderful to be in nature Mm -hmm. yeah Definitely is a good way to ground for me Mm -hmm. as well. Have you reflected on how what the work that you're bringing into the world is uh, assisting in breaking down some of the systemic oppression of patriarchy? Yes. (laughs) Like I would almost go so far as to say that's it, that's all, that's everything for me in my (laughs) career and purpose at this stage and time. Mm. The way that happens is, um, is more at a personal level and definitely, definitely not just with women. I work equally with men. So I, I do want to be really, it's so important for me to be really careful about discerning masculine and feminine principles as they present internally and externally in the world, but as more of an energy pattern. Yes. Um, I've come to like the metaphors of soul and Luna better just because they're not engendered. Mm -hmm. Differentiate that from men and women. Um, And then also be really careful to not project patriarchy onto men. Men. (laughs) It's so important because, God, the men need our help and we need their help. We all need each other at this point in this critical juncture. Yes. that we're at as a species and as a planet. So it's not about blaming or shaming men at all. It is about how can we all honor and respect each other. Mm-hmm. And part of that is all of us becoming aware of what are our individual core values, ideals, mm-hmm. beliefs that are maybe aligned and maybe not aligned with society's moral code or compass, right? Right. and that process in and of itself of becoming unenmeshed with the conditioning um, of the popular culture and kind of throwing off those conditioning pieces is, is such a complex one. And it is so complex. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
And and so some of it is tied up in, you know, the the what is that saying? Not every man is a patriarch and not every patriarch is a man. Uh-huh. And yet there's this piece, at least um for me, when I when I tie this in with leadership and the popular culture and the ways that women have been excluded or stopped from participation to the highest level that feels like there is a need to tend the feminine because from where I'm standing, a lot of the masculine traits have been allowed to become too prominent and um, anything taken to its extreme becomes problematic and so, you know, this whole process of finding our read, refinding ourselves in, as individuals, um, and then as the collective, bringing that forward into the collective. Do you have any any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, would you disagree that we need to tend the feminine both in men and and women? Uh, no, I, I I agree fully. And that I would say is tending the soul, right? Mm. If we're if we're tending the feminine in both men and women, we are also tending the soul because the soul is personified as the feminine archetype, mm. as the feminine principle. So we want to be tending the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, to your point about the masculine has been so overvalued. Um, that is true within women as well, and really important that women become so conscious of the ways we've um, adapted adapted and become really masculine. You know, when we had the feminist movement in the 60s, it it has really served so much to bring women into power and influence, but it is within the values of masculine uh, ideology still. So yes. what happened was we, as women, ended up really co-opting and um, adopting the masculine mm-hmm. principles, which which worked. I mean, at least we got to where we are with the feminist movement. We got a seat at the table, right? We got a seat at the table. That's right. <laughs> but now, um, you know, in 2019, what I want to be seeing happen, and I wrote about this in one of the chapters is having uh, the ability to be feminine feminists. Mm-hmm. So I identify as a feminist almost despite myself because of the <laughs> connotations with it. But I also identify as being very feminine. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that means more engaged with intuition and instincts, softer values, more kind of lunar qualities, unconscious, symbolic language. These Mm -hmm. kinds of things to me are more feminine, recognizing the need for collaboration and interconnectedness and connection, but not just with others, with all that is. Mm -hmm. All of that seems to belong more to the feminine, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So trying to bring forward, particularly within women, mm-hmm. a sense of feminine leadership or feminine feminism, mm-hmm. if that makes some sense. Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, you listed some of the values there of feminine leadership. Um, I just want to pick your brain a little bit. 
more collaboration, non-competitiveness, more fluidity, reliance on symbols and intuition. What else? Are there any other important values of feminine leadership? Mm -hmm. The other one that I think is huge is beauty. Mm. I think bringing and bringing in beauty, being in service to beauty, and I, I mean more beauty with a capital B, like the beauty that would belong to the ever creative goddess of Aphrodite, the beauty of everything, like when we're in service to that which is beautiful, we're in service to soul, we're in service to love, right? It's not a beauty that's shallow and vain and artificial. It's a beauty that is um, appreciates every single moment of being able to be here in mm. bodies. Mm. Yes. Yes, beauty is all around us. Um, in so many different ways. I think that's why nature calls uh, so strongly to, to people uh-huh. because the beauty is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere and it's animated. There's symbolic um, gestures happening all the time. It's a place we can really experience and feel our interconnectedness because mm-hmm. something will happen that touches us deeply, you know, those that we can we can know that experience of interconnectedness when we're in nature. Mm-hmm. And with the eco-justice being so prevalent right now, um nature being a valued piece of our existence is is obviously part of what we're all concerned about losing um and not to mention our planet um and our existence as a human race but um you told me earlier about the connection between tending the authentic nature um, and our caring for our soul and how that translates into a relationship with the with the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it is so important that these discussions are happening in different ways and at different levels um, right now. Obviously, I'm not a scientist; I'm a psychologist, but um, the science is supporting what so many of us feel and sense is that we are at a very pivotal time in history where we might, you know, our children might be facing, you know, the demise of our planet. Mm -hmm. And so how we respond at this time is really critical. So one of the things I think we can do by being related to and engaged with our more authentic, wild, innate self, we will start to be aware of how, just how interconnected we are to all of this. So the the anima mundi, which means anima means soul in mundi world, so the world's soul is all of the the life, everything that's animated, anima, on earth is part of the anima mundi. We are part of that. We are interconnected with it. We all have a part to play. Every tree, every person, every chickadee, we're all interconnected in it. 
we have a belief as humans that we're sentient and conscious. I'm not entirely convinced we're the only sentient conscious beings, but nevertheless, we seem to believe that we are at this point and I'm fine with that. So we have, we have a lot of power and a lot of influence over how we can uh, move forward. So tending our inner wilds, tending our soul, tending the wild individual soul will also cause us to make choices that are in alignment with tending the wild soul of the anima mundi. It'll Will one will mirror the other, one will reflect the other, one will affect the other. They're all we're all part of the same life force. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. I'm just curious what that what that tending of the wild soul looks like, you know, in real life. Well, I think in some ways it depends if you're introverted or extroverted. Back to right. typology again. Um, people like me that are dominantly introverted or strongly introverted mm-hmm. are going to do it more through tending their inner wilds and their psyche. They're going to use their dreams as guidance about how they're going to make choices in the world mm-hmm. and what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. People that are more extroverted or stronger in extroversion are probably going to be more active in joining organizations and starting groups and marching in protests and Mm -hmm. being part of policy and change. So people that are more extroverted are likely to be more active in that um, external world where people that are more introverted are going to make their choices influenced by what's aligned with them internally. Mm-hmm. I, I strongly believe though that either way does the same thing. As mm-hmm. you affect one, you affect the other. Right. I saw a sign here in Victoria that I thought was great at the recent march that said, um, it's so bad introverts are here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Was, That's that great. It's so that good. bad. The yeah. introverts left their house to That's go. That's right. We're marching. <laughs> exactly. It's that bad. It is, for sure. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Just wondering if you have any ideas about navigating these really big, difficult pieces of the landscape that we're in right now, these kind of rather chaotic times from a place of love versus a place of fear or hate. Well, um, you know, Part of that, of course, is being in our heart center, having courage to be in our heart center, speaking with gratitude, with appreciation, with kindness to ourselves and to others. And that, that absolutely takes courage. It, it's, not, it's not the easy thing to do for the most part. Having said that... It's not that we want to lead with fear and hate. Fear is not going to go away. That's where courage comes in. We have to recognize, oh yeah, I'm afraid and go anyway and do Mm -hmm. what we need to do anyway. And hate, um, if it's that strong, it's worth looking at. What is it? And what's going on there? Is there something in shadow that needs to be tended personally? Is there some sort of judgment or criticism or what what is it what is it that's causing that mm. so there's a huge amount of um dividedness 
uh, particularly in our neighbors to the south right now, the nation, their nation is terribly divided. So it's incredibly interesting of how do we then find a way to create tolerance and common ground and acceptance. You know, I think Canada does a much better job of diversity and accepting differences, whereas um, other significant global powers are maybe not in that place at this time. So recognizing that that division is a huge gap that needs to be crossed and we have to try to find compassion and tolerance, including for our neighbors to the South at this time, how do we find compassion for them too, right? As Canadians where we have uh, a different relationship nationally right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any lessons from the wild woman and the journey she's been on and uh, the tensions that she, she holds? Well, I think one of the really helpful lessons for the wild woman, one of the main symbols for her is the bear. Mm-hmm. And a bear was woven through my, my book as well and my research and my dreams. And a bear is, you know, pretty tolerant of somebody being in her part of the world, as long as you're not treading on her boundaries or too close to her cubs. But we all know you do not get too close to a bear's cubs. She's got really good boundaries, mm-hmm. right? And so boundaries in this, in this whole time for individuals, for relationships, for nations, for global harmony, let's aim for, mm. boundaries are really, really important, right? Respect and boundaries, respecting each other's boundaries. All, all of that piece of what's okay and what's not okay is is really important to be clear and respecting of. Mm. So I, I come back to relationships and sexuality uh, with the wild woman because I think that there's there's so much about what she's all wrapped up in at the time that that sexuality and relationship become, as you say, sort of the access point to her journey. But also because in, uh, you know, popular culture, we tend to think of that and the moving into different forms of sexuality as the wild woman releases her conditioning around what sexuality means for her. And so I just wonder if you can kind of reconcile some of that for my listeners about what this really means as a wild woman in relationship, in sexuality. So that's funny because now we go back to where I started my research of what are some of the ways a woman who has recovered the wild woman archetype expresses her sexuality and engaging right. relationship. So um, I think the first part is recognizing that relationships do provide us with a growth opportunity. They do provide us with the opportunity to become self-aware. So the struggles are the material that creates that. Now, um, for more mature women who have spent their years in that struggle, and you know if you're on the other side or not, like we just know that, Mm -hmm. um, then I think relationship takes on a new hue. And it doesn't become about struggle. And it's not that it becomes easy, but it's not about reconciling things within ourselves that are requiring consciousness. It is now about being engaged just human to human. 
So it's about being kind. It's about respect. It's it's much more about the human experience of just living rather than the struggle that comes from having to awaken and reconcile all of these things that are opposites within us. Mm. So relationships seem to happen in um, from a different foundation after we've gone through a rather significant awakening process. It's not to say it won't be effort and there won't be struggles, but the grounding and the foundation and the purpose is very different. Now, sexuality, um, hopefully women have become connected to their bodies. They're able to be present. They're able to be in the moment, able to be with the beauty. All of that is about engaging the wild woman, just being in that moment-to-moment consciousness and presence with the body. So obviously that's going to have a lot of impact on how we have sex. So sex then becomes a real moment-to-moment, this is okay, this is great, I'm enjoying this. Oh no, wait a minute, no, no, something just changed, I'm no longer enjoying this. You know, and we really stay with ourselves, speak up for ourselves, advocate for ourselves. Often women uh, also experience a change in their sexual preference or orientation. Sexuality becomes quite fluid for women Mm -hmm. um, after an awakening. So they might suddenly find themselves attracted to a woman, but it's not that they would identify necessarily as being lesbian, just, oh, this is an attractive person. That's different. Haven't had that experience before. Mm -hmm. Those kind of experiences can start to show up. Different ways of wanting to explore their bodies. Usually there's a um, a very, I don't want to use the word promiscuous because it has negative connotations, but a very uh, like exciting time of connecting with their sexuality. Mm. And then it seems to often, although these are not always the case, often be followed by a sense of um, recognizing the sacredness of their body as a vessel, as a temple. And so being a lot more uh, respectful of who they invite in, invite Mm -hmm. into their body and invite into their energy field. Mm -hmm. So that's sometimes, uh, it's a relatively common trajectory that women seem to experience as well. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right in your book, if we are engaged with the wild woman, the role of sex may run uh, wild across sexual boundaries, but it does not have to be meaningless or reckless at all. In fact, if we can stand at the crossroads and leave the well-trodden, maybe even paved trail and follow the pull of our hearts into the trailless wilderness of the wild woman, it will be meaningful to the soul. Fidelity comes becomes redefined as being faithful to yourself, to what you believe, to whatever commitments you and the person you love have consciously decided to make. Fidelity is no longer connected to sexuality in this context unless we make that choice. Uh-huh. That's just a beautiful, um, a beautiful thought of how the, you know, the wild woman navigates her sexuality without the conditioning of others. Absolutely. And 
sexuality, because it's one of these things that's really loaded with moral judgment, it's one of the places where we really do have to wrestle with hard questions like, am I monogamous? Am I polyamorous? Am I in love with this person? Is it more important to be with the family than to follow my heart? You know, it, it can bring in all kinds of really big questions, mm. right? It just is, there's a lot of hard questions that require looking at through the, um, because there's uh, a sexual attraction that's been brought into the world somehow into the orbit. Mm. Yeah. And then we become, again, in service to not the moral code that society has decided, but we have fidelity to our souls, right? To ourselves and our commitments and our values. Mm -hmm. Do you think we'll ever get to a point where we don't need to have midlife crises? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. Um, uh, Only because it is psychologically one of the two really big developmental phases. (laughs) We have that one at about 16 or so, which for some reason we acknowledge, but still don't do a really great rite of passage. Uh And then we have the one at midlife, which personally I think is bigger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And it's just a psychological developmental phase, right? Mm -hmm. Where the ego is strong enough to be in service to something greater. Yeah. And we don't talk about it. We, you know, except to call it a midlife crisis, Mm -hmm. which is so negative and not at all reflective of how expansive it is no it's more accurately called a spiritual awakening or soulful Mm -hmm. awakening or people have some aversion to the word spiritual i Mm -hmm. sort of do as well Mm -hmm. it it is uh it, it does undermine it by calling it a midlife crisis and we part of our patriarchal system is that we anesthetize through medication and shopping and alcohol and Mm -hmm. sex and Mm -hmm. overworking and Mm -hmm. all kinds of different things so that we don't have to feel our feelings. Mm -hmm. But if we just let ourselves feel our feelings, it's a much cleaner way through actually. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. So much so. Well, this has been a beautiful and thought provoking and there's so much more we could talk about, but how can we find out more about you and your work and, and be a support to you? Thank you. Um, the best way to find out information about me is my website, which is drstacyshelby.com. That's D-R-S-T-A-C-E-Y, Shelby, S-H-E-L-B-Y.com. Um, on there, I have other podcasts and published articles. There's a link to my book, Tracking the Wild Woman Archetype. The book is also available. It's published through Chiron Publications. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Okay, great. And I think those are that from my website. You can find the social media links and email links as well. And you do work with people in your own practice, both um, in person and online. Is that right? I do. Yes. So my my clinic is in Squamish, but at this point, about half of my practice is remote. So usually mm-hmm. online. Um, since the book came out, people from all over are uh, seeking me out to work with me, which is a really great honor. I'm glad it's resonating with people. Oh, that's fantastic. That's good to hear. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stacy. I appreciate your time today and thank you for sharing so much with us.
Thanks for having me, Lorene. It was great to be here with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. When you leave us a review, I'll select one lucky reviewer each month to receive a special prize. You can also find us on the very special Divas That Care Network at divasthatcare.com. Until next time, keep being you.